0: Part of the love for oneself is self-compassion, which really comes into play, not in our triumphs, you know, in our great days, but when we've blown it, and we've made a mistake, or we've fallen off a course that we want to stay on, or uh, whatever it is, you know, to be able to pick ourselves up and start over, and have a sense of resilience. Really, takes some examination. A lot of people think self-compassion. Is laziness? It's like, ah, so what? I'll forgive myself. I'll mm-hmm. blow it again in 10 right, seconds. Like letting so yourself what? off the hook for everything. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But really, I think when we look at what's most effective and most efficient in making a change or getting something done, it's not going on a harangue towards yourself for like five and a half hours after you've blown it. You know, it's like saying, OK, lessons learned or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or that doesn't feel very good. Or what can I do to make amends and then start over? That's Sharon Salzberg, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast.
1: The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. Welcome to my podcast. inevitably is going to be impacted so it's important to invest in a quality mattress one that's insanely comfortable that's organic sustainably made and that my friends is a birch mattress fair trade and rainforest alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free eco rest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well being or lack thereof. And to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including of course the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I've come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer that's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. All right, we got through all that. Let's talk about today's show. Well, today we are going to tackle the minefield of all minefields, love. Yeah, we're gonna talk about love. So this, I would imagine, is perhaps the most discussed subject of all time and yet so tricky to talk about, especially for guys, I think. So I suppose on some level, this is a conversation about how we get love, how we give it, how we attract it, and how we cultivate it. But let's take a step back because what are we even talking about? I mean, what is love? What is love in the truest, most fundamental sense? How are we defining this word? If you ask today's guest, the great Sharon Salzberg, she will tell you that there is so much misunderstanding when it comes to love, this idea of love, and that it's not something that we should be trying to extract from another human being, that it's not really a feeling at all, but much more an ability an ability that we can all cultivate, an ability that resides within all of us to have real and profound connection, not just with others, but with ourselves. So who is Sharon Salzberg? Well, Sharon is a towering figure in the field of meditation. If you haven't heard of her, she is not only a world-renowned teacher, she is a multiple New York Times bestselling author and somebody who has played a central, a crucial role in actually bringing and introducing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West and mainstream culture, dating all the way back to 1974 when she first began teaching. Sharon is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Bar, Barre, Bar? I think it's Bar, Massachusetts, and the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, which is considered her seminal work, uh, a book called Loving Kindness, which uh, also is tremendous. And her newest release, it just came out. It's called Real Love, and it's great. I just finished it. Highly recommend it. And obviously, this is the focal point for today's conversation, love. Uh, Sharon is also a regular columnist for On Being. She is a contributor to The Huffington Post, and she is the host of her own podcast called The Meta Hour, Meta, M-E-T-T-A, and you guys should all check that out. Uh, one of the many striking things about Sharon, I think, uh, who, you know, like I said, is really this luminary, this legend in the meditation space, is that there's no pretense about her whatsoever. There's no artifice. There's no guru trappings. She's just cool. She's like super cool. She's very easy and fun to be with down to earth. And as you guys are going to see momentarily, she has a very modern, secular and accessible approach to these Buddhist teachings that she espouses. And I had a blast talking to her. So this is a deep dive into many, many things. Uh, it's into Sharon's extraordinary life, of course, her interesting path to meditation and then to becoming this luminary teacher. Uh, But it's also about how we think about and practice love, not only love for oneself, but love for others and love for all. Uh, It's about unconscious pain and the value of suffering. It's about the three essential skills, compassion, mindfulness and concentration uh, that meditation can help us master by training our attention. And also, this is a conversation about what it looks like, or should I say, how to practice compassion and loving kindness for others in uh, what I think is fair to say a very divided time. Uh, All I can tell you is that Sharon really is the coolest, and you guys are definitely in for a treat with this one. I love this exchange, so get comfortable, and uh, let's talk to her, shall we? You guys ready to talk about love? Yeah, let's do that. So, Sharon Salzberg, such a pleasure to sit down and chat with you today.
0: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to see you.
1: I'm super excited about it. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about meditation. We're going to talk about mindfulness, faith. What else are we going to talk about? Doubt, fear, suffering. Oh. (laughs) Anything else you want to talk about? We're going to cover all of them. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. So, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you at Jason Garner's house a couple of months ago when I was up in Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. we got to, I got to meditate with you a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry I couldn't make it up to Santa Cruz a couple of weeks ago to do it, but thank you for taking the time to chat today.
0: No, oh, it's, it's a great delight really.
1: Yeah. So, um, maybe, you know, perhaps the best sort of intro point or way into this is just to crack it wide open with, with real love. I mean, this is the name of the new book. Um, it's great. I'm about halfway through it. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not totally done with it, <laughs> uh-huh. but it, it's fabulous. Congratulations. Yeah, thank I, you so much. I can't much. wait for people to experience uh, the beauty and the wisdom in that. So, you know, why don't you define for us what real love is? You know, what's the difference between how we, you know, conceptualize love in our current culture and, you know, your your take on it?
0: That's the killer question, isn't it? Is, right? <laughs> what is we'll just real love? we just spend the next 2 hours talking about this. <laughs> what is real love? I have to figure it out. <laughs> um, I usually talk about it as a state of really profound connection that needs to take it, take that concept away from kind of the adornments, you know, and the elaborations that the culture puts on it that it has to be romantic. It has to have a certain flavor. Uh, almost the whole book actually oddly enough is born out of this one line in a movie, the movie Dan in real life. Um, The line goes, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Mm. And, of course, we know it as a feeling, we yearn for it as a feeling, we think of it constantly sometimes as a feeling, but what if we reconceptualize that as an ability, some capacity we have within us that's not in the hands of someone else but is really part of us and that other people may awaken it or enliven it or nourish it or threaten it but it's within us. So mm-hmm. I realized that without that shift, I, I tended to think of love as a, a commodity. And it was almost like a package. And it's like the UPS person was standing in the doorstep with that package in his hand and changed his mind and went the other way. And it'd be like, hey, wait a minute, you know. Right. I've lost all the love in my life. But really, it's within us. And uh, that was a huge shift for me.
1: And how did you... Well, I guess... That's going to bring it back. I want to get into the whole origin story. We'll we'll, we'll work our way towards that for for context. Um, but you break the book up into three sections. It's basically love for oneself, love for others, and and love for all, right? Yeah, and right. and you kind of. Um, it's a journey towards reclaiming this word and freeing it of all the baggage that we kind of associate mm-hmm, with it, mm-hmm. and and you know placing it in a context really as a verb, right? And not yeah. something to be, um, not this sort of state or something that we're striving for or trying to get from another, but trying to yeah. really kind of germinate and That's cultivate right. within
0: ourselves. That's right, and it. Uh, I think that. That realization has every level to it, including the fact that maybe it's up to us then, you know, which can be a little scary. Right. Like, whoa, wait a minute, you know. I was well, we don't want to take personal responsibility, yeah. you know, that's yeah. no fun. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, oh, you know, maybe the package is a better deal. But, um, yeah, it has lots of levels. But that's exactly it. When I mm-hmm. first was thinking about this book and and uh, kind of creating it and I talked to someone in publishing about it, they said to me, oh, the love market's really saturated you know, it's right. like, it's so overdone. And I thought about that. And, and I thought, well, maybe the how to fix your relationship market or right, the find ro- the romantic love That's market, right. you know, but this is something this is something very different.
1: It's not a mistake that that, you know, the first section is cultivating love for oneself, right. And And yeah. I think we, you know, in our current society, think of Self-love as indulgent or selfish or narcissistic mm-hmm. or an exercise of the ego, but mm-hmm. really, you know, cultivating love for oneself is a foundational component in in actually even having the capacity to love other people. So, can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we tend to think of uh, self-love as narcissism and being selfish and and like you say, self-indulgent. But I think it has two really amazing components. One is A sense of inner resource, not feeling so exhausted and bereft and impoverished within, but having a sense of inner sufficiency or even inner abundance, which becomes like the source of being able to give and care and take care of others. You know, it's like if you feel like you've got nothing going on inside, nothing to contribute, uh, it's kind of a really bleak and hollow world within. You don't look at somebody in pain and think, How can I help you? You know, it's like, Go away. I'm really tired. You know, it's too much. I can't bear it. And we truly can't bear it in that moment. Uh, But we have the capacity to um, have a very different view of of our inner life and our experiences so that it doesn't feel so bleak and it doesn't feel so uh, not good enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other part of the love for oneself is self-compassion, which really comes into play not in our triumphs, you know, in our great days, but when we've blown it and we've made a mistake or we've fallen off a course that we want to stay on or... Uh, whatever it is, you know, to be able to pick ourselves up and start over and have a sense of resilience really takes some examination. A lot of people think self-compassion is laziness. It's like, ah, so what, I'll forgive myself, mm-hmm. I'll blow it again in 10 right, seconds. Right, like letting so yourself what? off the hook for everything. That's right, it, mm-hmm. that's right. But really I think when we look at what's most effective and most efficient in making a change or getting something done, it's not going on a harangue. Toward yourself for like five and a half hours after you've blown it you know it's like saying okay lessons learned or something like that mm-hmm. or that doesn't feel very good or what can i do to make amends and then start over most of us walk around
1: with an inordinate amount of self-judgment yeah. and self-criticism and doubt and you know an undercurrent of worthlessness or you know i'm not worthy of love and and we play this tape in our mind right? And, and I think when you're in that spot, um, whether it's victimization or just sort of, you know, wallowing in your own fear or what have you, you tend to look outside yourself for love. Like you you, you look at another person as being the missing mm-hmm. variable in that equation that's going to solve that for mm-hmm, yourself, as mm-hmm. opposed to that inward journey of, of cultivating it within.
0: But the problem, of course, is that Nothing you know will actually fill that gap, right? Know? Nothing outside, and then uh, I took in the book. We know that
1: intellectually,
0: <laughs> but oh, like we, do. we You know, well, I, I, a lot of people do, and we, st- but we still do it. You of know? course, we do it. You know, and it hurts so much. It's I really know. sad. Um, of course, we do it, but that's worthy of some <laughs> self compassion, right there. Um, but we don't have to do it in as obsessed a way and as diluted a way, perhaps, as we once did, because. We can see clearly. We can see for ourselves. You know, the, I think that the world is, is built of so many myths and just untruths, and uh, we're led to believe so many things that simply aren't true. Mm-hmm. And we incorporate them. We, we run around trying to find the perfect whatever. Um, and sometimes we can step back and say, wait a minute. Do I really need that, or what's the nature of that? And even love itself comes under that. That idea, because so many times people think of love as being stupid or you know like sentimental or or weak or weak or saccharine and and you know what's really strong is like vengefulness or whatever. But when you look at those states, just look at them. uh, It's kind of the opposite, actually. Vengefulness is very narrow, very much tunnel vision, very much um, not seeing any options. Uh, Hateful, you know, it doesn't feel really that good and it's kind of brittle you know it's not really that strong but love or compassion are are states of tremendous like spaciousness and um presence and you know energy and generosity they are actually stronger than we think
1: yeah i think it's a it's a position of strength but it lacks that rush you know that we get addicted to yeah. like we can become yeah. addicted to that anger response or yeah. vengefulness yeah. and those are i think i've heard you describe it they're they're like Brush fires, you know, they yeah, they, yeah. they burn very intensely, yeah. but ultimately they're not sustainable over the yeah, long run, yeah. right? And so, you know, love and compassion are deeper reservoirs that can sustain us over the yeah. long haul. Yeah. And you know, I can't, we can't talk about this without sort of contextualizing it with what's going on currently culturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're in a we're in a tremendously divisive situation at the moment uh, socially. And we see a lot of anger. We see a lot of it's almost like suddenly there's permission for a lot of this anger and vengefulness and Mm -hmm. and resentment Mm -hmm. to birth itself and and manifest itself in in some pretty unhealthy ways. Yeah, Uh, you know how does how does real love play into that in terms of how we navigate the world and and respond to that and you know tend to our own emotional bodies and you know what I mean, like in Mm -hmm. terms of boundaries and. And, you know, just the daily conversations that we have.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it has a lot to do with balance. It's like um, there, there's a real need to, and I don't know that we ever understand these things intellectually or analytically, but to explore terrains of what could it possibly mean to have love and compassion for ourselves and for someone else at the same time? Or what could it mean to have compassion for someone and realize I agree with nothing they are proposing and I'm going to fight? but not perhaps from a place of hatred.
1: A Uh, place of of neutrality. Yeah, it's
0: a place of of balance, of of wishing that everyone could be free. And that, I mean, I've worked with people, for example, with horribly abusive parents, I mean horribly abusive parents, who said, I can't find the phrase, you know, like what would I possibly uh, be offering, you know? And I said, can you say maybe free of hatred? They said, yeah, that I can say. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and something like that, it's its its a profound exploration. But I really do believe that our kind of corrosive, rigid sense of self and other, where the other doesn't count, you know, it doesn't matter, um, is at the root of, of a lot of the really scary stuff that's going on. I find it scary, too. You know, I live part-time in New York City, uh, in Greenwich Village, and, you know, a block away, people are painting swastikas on walls. And I think, wait a minute, you know, like, mm-hmm. this is really scary. Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't think fear is the basis for going forward in in a good way in a skillful way and i think the sense of otherness like it doesn't matter what happens to you you're like a chair you know you're not like a person right um is at the root of a lot of that behavior and so i don't want to perpetrate that myself uh but i also do strongly believe in the power of love or the strength of love and compassion it's not like being meek and obsequious and giving in, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's a whole other source of, of strength that can have us, have us really fight.
1: There's a phrase in, uh, in recovery parlance that's, that goes like this, uh, you cannot give something that you haven't got. Uh, do you think that applies to, you know, how you, how you think about love in the sense that you're really not capable of truly loving another, uh, until you love yourself, are they are they exclusive in that
0: regard? I actually don't think they're that completely exclusive. Um, I had a conversation with this woman, Bell Hooks, in New York City, and she called me on that. You know, she didn't agree with that. She uh-huh. thought they were. You really had to love yourself before you could love someone else. She said, "You can care for someone or care about them, but you can't really love them unless you love yourself." And I said, "Well, you know, I, I feel like I know people." Who do love others, but you can't in the long term sustain that without love for yourself. Then right. you know generosity becomes martyrdom or gets weird or distorted, and you're no longer actually really caring. You're, you know, calculating like how much have I given you that you're not returning. You know, yeah, you're taking a balance sheet. But yeah.
1: I, I think that, that there is a sort of act as if mentality that you can appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking of this that animated video that you voiced yeah, the other day. Yeah. I shared that on social media the other day. It's so beautiful. Were you like a llama? What was the uh what was the I, animal I, I was that you're dog? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But it's basically the story. You could tell the story better than I, but essentially it's it's you know how we interact with the people on a daily basis, the cashier at the restaurant or the store, and how we look through them as opposed to, you know, at them. And this idea that you even if you're not feeling it like to, you know what? I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to, I'm going to actually engage this person and, and, and try to, you know, see them as a a whole human being. Yeah. And even if you're lacking that compassion for yourself, that, you know, sort of adopting that behavior modality uh, can reframe, yeah. How you, you know, not just interact with others, but how you see yourself yeah. in the sense that, you know, self-esteem comes from performing esteemable acts. And if you get yeah. into the habit of yeah. doing that, you yeah. are cultivating self-love in some regard by loving yeah. others.
0: Oh, I think you really are. That's, that's well, well said. And and there's something about that act that returns us to something inside of ourselves that is whole, mm-hmm. you know, that may be hidden or hard to see or obscured in some way. But in that act, if it's done, you know, purely uh, that's what we touch in on again. It's like, oh. And that, you know, the reason for the animation was, which I also think is ex- extremely cute. It's really cute. Um, I've never seen <laughs> I said what I shared it and I was like,
1: <laughs> I should actually watch this every day because <laughs> you know, I have to be reminded, you know, I look through people as much as the next yeah, person. Right. We know. all
0: do. Um, you know, it's sort of like the second great controversy after Love is Weak and sort of stupid is that um, I think, in Eastern philosophy, love is quite trainable. Uh, it's a skill, and it's a skill. It's it's trainable because it's based on how we pay attention, and we know attention is trainable. That's all that meditation is: is training attention. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're forcing yourself to feel something you don't really feel, or you're you're being hypocritical and covering over some really difficult feelings with this little veneer, you know, of sweetness. It's not like that. But paying attention differently will lay the ground for love to emerge, and so. It's, it's completely – here, too, it's almost in our hands, you know? Right. Do we want to cultivate that skill or not? So, like you said, you go into that store and you look at the person, not through them. Mm-hmm. Something happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: by honing your attention, by really focusing on your attention, by practicing this skill – uh, you create that space that allows it yeah. to come in, and and I like that idea because it allows you to take personal responsibility for your ability yeah. to love yeah. others and yourself, as opposed to waiting for it to come. You know, yeah. in this you know romantic notion of right. how we you know sort of yeah. typically think about love. Yeah, how do you think of how do you communicate about this subject with? Men versus women, like, is there a, a, a difference in the, in the vocabulary that you use? I mean, I think that it's, it's, you know, am I going far afield to say that, you know, it's trickier with men because men are a little bit more clamped down, and you know, even saying the word out loud can be challenging for mm-hmm. a lot, and it it sort of, it sort of, um, it sort of uh, challenges you know, ideas about masculinity and, mm-hmm, and strength mm-hmm. and all these, you know, kind of cultural identity issues that get played into.
0: Well, another uh genesis of the book was um conversation I had with a, a friend of mine who's a man who who was saying that in his mind the movement from a more um conventional kind of love to more of a state of real love was in a way moving out of the center of privilege to really listen to his partner in a different way, so he said, you know, his wife suggested something he didn't really want to do, but he thought, you know, what it works for her, and it's not that convenient for me, mm-hmm. but it's what she wants. So why should everything be referenced to my needs, you know, and my demands, and um, and I I would say to him in response, you know, there are an awful lot of people, usually women in this world, who never voice their demands or their their needs. You know, so for them, moving to a more real kind of love or a liberated kind of love might be actually expressing what who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, and what they desire. And I like those two polarities. They're actually both in the book. Um, I changed his name, but uh, you know, uh, it was it was so interesting to me to watch that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there is movement and growth for anybody, and depending on your, if you think about it as balance. Uh, although it's not that you know sexy a word, but I think it really is a state of balance. It's a state of some repose or harmony, and we're out of harmony one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the story I told about from the woman's side was about a friend of mine who uh, outlived her cancer prognosis. I think by forty years, something like that. And she was telling me about her early healing journey when she was first sort of looking at her life and everything in her life. And she said, "I used to be the kind of woman." Who I'd be sitting in the car with my husband, boiling hot, and the most I could ever bring myself to say is, are you warm, dear? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. So that's in big contrast to my other friend, you know, who, who's saying, you know what, it can't all be about me. Right. And so I think that's also, that's like the magic of a, a creative process, you know, is, is that dynamism of leaving where we are if we're stuck and in some kind of rut and moving to another place
1: mm-hmm. of getting outside yourself yeah. and your own ideas yeah. and, and needs yeah. and, and thinking about those of the other.
0: Yeah. Or your own in her yeah. case, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah.
1: do you, do you, it, it, when you talk about love and real love, is this a unifying singular concept? Because I, when I think about love, I think, you know, well, there's the way I love my wife and that's different from how I love my kids. And, how I love my parents, uh, you know, how do you how do you parse that?
0: Um, I think it's both, you know, the manifestation, the feeling will be very different. And People would often ask that in, in classes, like, I want to love everybody, but I kind of like my husband a lot, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, do I have to give him up, you know? Does he have to go back in the pool or something, you know? Uh, no, I mean, of course we have, I mean, we would say, you know, in, in Buddhist teaching we'd say we have different karma with different people, but... Um, you know, that's a little bit esoteric a way of saying it, but we do have different roles or relationships with different people. They're going to feel very different, mm-hmm. they're going to manifest differently. Uh, but there's something about that kind of pure connection where we're just there that I think is actually the same. Mm-hmm. And it's it's maybe, maybe most complicated actually with children because of the responsibility of, you know, needing to protect them and take mm-hmm. care of them and so on.
1: But it goes back to honing your attention. Yeah. Right. And mindfulness yeah, and, and, yeah. and meditation and, you know, that that journey to being able to do that. Right. And yeah, we're going we're gonna to yeah, talk about that. Yeah. So let's contextualize this. I want to I want to go back to the to the, you know, the origin story here, because uh, it's quite remarkable. The journey that you've been on mm-hmm. to be able to do what you do today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So take me back to the early days in New York City and, and your My life. And oh, that. yeah.
0: So I had a very, um, traumatic, you know, uh, disordered, chaotic kind of childhood. I, uh, when I wrote this book called faith, I looked back, which is sort of my faith journey. I looked back and I realized that by the time I went to uh, college at the age of 16, I'd lived in five different family configurations. Every one of them, uh, shifted because of a death or some loss or some profound, um, craziness. And so my. Parents got divorced when I was four. My father disappeared, and I lived with my mother and her siblings until I was nine, and then my mother died very suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I lived with my father's parents, whom I hardly knew. My father didn't reappear for another couple of years, so my grandfather died. His father died, and then my father came back, and he was back for about six weeks when he took an overdose of sleeping pills and ended up in some mental health facility or another for the rest of his life, which was, you know, pretty extensive. Um, So either VA hospital nursing home or sometimes on the streets if he would run away or something like that. And sometimes he'd be better and sometimes he'd be not so well. So was there a diagnosis for that? Well, I think his actual diagnosis was paranoid schizophrenic. What, whether in those days, um, those were done with tremendous accuracy or not, I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I, then I lived with my grandmother until I went to college at the age of 16, so that, that made me so like five. five. five different incarnations and, yeah. and, li- yeah. and,
1: and a tragic you know, yeah. Yeah. occurrence in each one of those that you had to yeah. weather at a very early age. Yeah, yeah. yeah the trauma of that, I, I can't even fathom. It's amazing That's you made bad. it through that and, mm-hmm. and you know, w- were able to kind of get through high school and get yourself yeah. to college, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you remember feeling like when you went away to, you went upstate to college? Yeah, I went to Buffalo, or, yeah. Buffalo, so do you, do you remember feeling a, like a sense of free, like I need to get away from this or what was the you know, kind of emotional I did, experience yeah, and It and wasn't ex-
0: I was close to that. It wasn't exactly I need to get away from this, but I, I kept thinking there's something else. Mm-hmm. There's something, and- And, had, and
1: how were you carrying your suffering at that
0: time? I was like completely isolated, I was very shut down. I was very unhappy but not expressive of it. I mean, didn't know how to I didn't even know what was happening mm-hmm. within me. It was actually only when I started meditating, uh, when I went to India that I began uncovering kind of the range of what right. you know, the range of what I was experiencing, which was rage and fear and you know, sadness and all these things. And I found that shocking. You know, I didn't know I felt this. Right. Yeah, you talk about that in the book
1: the experience that a lot of people have when they when they begin you know, kind of an intensive meditation practice for the first time, they think they're all good, you yeah. know, and then yeah. suddenly they're crying uncontrollably yeah. and they yeah. have all this yeah. rage or whatever. And they're like, yeah. I thought this was supposed to make me, I thought I was happy. Right. Yeah, really. you know? like, Where's the peace? You're like, this is, this is a gyp, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you're saying, no, you're exactly where where you need to be because you're actually confronting your suffering for the very first yeah. time. No, that's and that's, true. that's part of this process of, you know, acknowledgement and and ultimately yeah. working through it.
0: I mean, this is a little bit, my story is a little bit in this book. It's, it's much more extensively in this book, Faith. And many, many people come up to me and say, I had a childhood just like yours. Or mm-hmm. I really understand. So it's, it's hardly rare, mm-hmm.
2: actually. Mm-hmm.
1: Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation, always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, It's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, so you're in Buffalo and you find yourself in like an Asian studies class, right? (laughs) Do you remember what pulled you towards that class to begin with? Was there like a, a conscious or unconscious, you know? Magnetizing
0: force <laughs> to that. It's a little bit like some of it was really just convenience. It fit into my schedule. Yeah. I needed to do a philosophy course because it was a requirement. Some of it was. It was kind of in the air. You know, the Beatles had gone to India. Right. And everyone was like the Maharishi. Yeah, the Mahar- Maharishi was around. People <laughs> were looking at like Indian music and sitars and you know, chai hadn't hit yet. You know, that hadn't come yet. Uh-huh. Much later, but uh, or the clothes. But you know, it was it was what was happening. I went to school in the sixties. Mm-hmm. You know. Um. And it was really in the Asian philosophy course that um, two things happened. One was in the component on Buddhism, which was most of it, when I heard the Buddha say there's suffering in life, that this is a natural part of life. Um, it was one of the most, probably the most liberating thing I'd ever heard. Right, to be born is to suffer. To be born right? is to suffer. And, and it was finally the thought, it's not just me you know, because I've been so different from everybody else all those years. Like, what do you say in French class when you're supposed to say what your father does for a living in French? It's like, I don't know how to say this, Mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, and suddenly there was no sense of being excluded. You know, it's like, we're all suffering. This is not always, you know, not, not that life is horrible, but there's always suffering in someone's life somewhere along the line. And, and that's the truth. And I felt incredibly freed just by that statement. And then I heard about these practices called meditation where you could actually do something about your mind and be happier. And it was like, I looked around Buffalo, New York, and at that time, I didn't find it anywhere, you know. Might have been there, but now it's probably everywhere, but uh, I just didn't see it. So the school had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere uh, for a year, theoretically, Mm -hmm. and then come back. So I created a project. I want to go to India.
1: Right. It's interesting, do you think that if you had decided to go to co- like City College in New York or, or, or something like that, that you would have ended up in analysis instead?
2: <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, never, I never thought
1: of that. In like a very Woody Allen kind of way?
0: That's very funny, I never thought of that. No, I, I don't think so. No, uh-uh. the- I mean,
1: you know, when we finish telling your whole story, I mean, it's, it's always that thing of like, when you look back in the rear view mirror, everything lines up perfectly. Uh, you, do you do you think about it in terms of of fate? Do you feel like like you know like this was on some level a, a predestined course for you, or that you were tapping into some kind of past life experience that led you towards this?
0: Uh, I don't think of it exactly as firmly as fate, but uh, I think it was meant to be in mm-hmm. a way, you know, like or I, I managed somehow. I managed to use it in a way that was right, really good. Like when. You know, I stayed in India for more than a year. I came back, finished school, went back to India. And then when I was leaving in 1974, for what I thought was going to be a very brief visit home, before I lived in India for the rest of my life, I went to see one of my teachers who was a woman named Deepama. Deepama is like a nickname, Deepa's mother. Uh, And uh, she was a woman who had suffered terribly in her life. And that's how she'd gotten into practice. She had three children, two of whom died. Her husband died really suddenly uh, and she developed this heart condition she like went to bed she she was living in Burma at the time she couldn't get out of bed and the doctor came and said you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind you should learn how to meditate Mm -hmm. so she got out of bed and uh, she went to the retreat center and when she emerged somehow she had metabolized all of that horrible grief and pain into some kind of compassion for everybody it was like this enormous radiance she had and uh, she was my teacher and so I went to see her say goodbye for my short short trip home and she said when you get to the States you'll be teaching and I said no I won't I said yes you will I said no I said yes you will I said no I won't and you're like 21 at this point I was 21 right? yeah. yeah and and she said two things that were really amazing the first was she said you really understand suffering that's why you should teach and that was the first moment I ever thought that everything I had been through had like a purpose, sort right. of. Uh, and then she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking you can't do it that's going to keep you from doing it.
1: Right. And, and I think it's, it's that knowing your suffering and owning your suffering and, and leveraging that suffering as a vehicle for yeah. healing not only yourself but yeah. others yeah. that has really been yeah. the touchstone of yeah. your life. Yeah. But to take it back, uh, just to kind of back into the timeline here a yeah, little bit sure. before you before you meet yeah. Deepa Ma, I mean, you you go, uh, you have this great story where even before you go to India, you met with a Tibetan Chunk monk, right? Say, yeah, and, yeah, and you're yeah. like, what should I do when I get to India? Yeah. And he's like, what does he? Uh, he says, follow the follow the pretense of accident. Right? right. And you're like, I don't know what that means, right? Right it 's well, only it 's only out. later that you understand, <laughs> yeah. but you go and you 're kind of meandering around India and you find yourself at this um, at this ashram for this meditation retreat, and you know unbeknownst to you you 're surrounded by all these people that yeah. ultimately yeah. Um, return like yourself and become leaders in this meditation movement throughout the West. Joseph Goldstein, Ram Dass, Krishna Dass. Dan Goldman. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable, right? That that was your first meditation retreat. Like when I see that, when I, I mean, it's like, it gives me chills. It's like, this is, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. This was like perfect for you. And this is all meant to be unfolding in the way that it did. Yeah,
0: I, I think it was, I, I, I look back at that, you know, that particular era, Mm -hmm. and I think, amazing, you know, we're all still so close, and we're all still... Like doing it in yeah. some way or another, and Ram Das was Ram Das at that That's point, right? right? Yeah, I mean, he had this. already,
1: you know, he had already had quite a bit of fame and yeah.
0: notoriety. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Be Here Now came out when came out then. Came he got the box when we were there together. Oh, he did! Wow, yeah, it arrived and was like, "Look at this!" You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like
1: 1971. Uh huh. Do you know? You probably know Bhagavan Das. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. yeah. actually yeah. 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 <laughs> he married my wife and I. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So for those who don't know, Bhagavan actually was a lanky teenager who ultimately ultimately led Ram Dass to Neem Karoli Baba, right? Uh-huh. And Introduced right. them and yeah. Neem Karoli Baba becoming Ram Dass's teacher and, you know, the rest is history. Um, amazing, right? So so you have this initial meditation retreat, and this is your introduction. I mean, that began as a Vipassana retreat, yeah, right? Yeah, it was a Vipassana retreat. And it kind of ended with you being introduced to, yeah. to Metta. So, yeah. so maybe describe the difference between uh-huh. Uh-huh. those two traditions.
0: Okay, so Vipassana is... Um a word in Pali, which is the language of the original Buddhist text, it just means insight meditation. So uh, that one particular style of doing meditation has come to be associated with the word Vipassana. The teacher was S. N. Goenka. And mm-hmm. uh, it was just a kind of mostly mindfulness of the body and body sensations and experiencing everything, like emotions and thoughts through those sensations. Um, and that he the retreat began with just a kind of awareness of the breath which is a practice most people get familiar with first just resting your attention on the feeling of the breath and bringing your attention back when it wanders which is continuous um, and then this awareness of the body so right at the end goenka uh, led a metta metta mm-hmm. retreat a med- meditation and that was almost like a ceremonial way of, of ending the retreat Metta means loving kindness in Pali. So that was the moment I heard, oh, there's another style. There's another way of practicing. And that's kind of interesting. It's all about love. It's about filling your being with the sense of love. That's how you start and extending it to all others. And I longed for that, certainly, and I looked for that for... And that became your sweet spot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and did yeah. You, were you aware of that at that
1: moment? Like, this is going to be my thing? No, I mean, because no. I was so naive. I was so yeah.
0: young. And I didn't know how. To, I mean, I knew that there was a way of doing it intensively um, with structure and stuff, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And, and just so we're clear, like, so the Vipassana,
1: you're, you're, it's really focused on the breath, but the actual practice of, of metta is repetition of a mantra but not a mantra in the traditional sense. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like these sayings, right? Right. Where you're emitting loving kindness into the world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we consider it like a practice of generosity. So it's offering, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of um, looking through you, I look at you and and think maybe happy, maybe peaceful or whatever the particular Mm -hmm. thing is.
1: And so from there, where do you go from there? You meet um, I, Deepa Ma shortly after that. Uh,
0: I met her probably a year later or nine months later. Mm-hmm. I stayed in India. I practiced with other teachers. I practiced with Tibetan teachers. I um, ended up going back to Bodgaya, which is where I started with going and kind of continuing on in that tradition. So I probably met her that summer, summer of 71, mm-hmm. something like that. And... Uh, I stayed beyond my year away from Buffalo, but then I went back and I did what I needed to do to get two years of independent study credit. So I right. did that, and then I went back to India. So ultimately, you were in India for like four years, though, Almost on four and years off, yeah, like three
1: yeah. and a half years. Yeah, and and the idea at the time was you were just going to stay there, right? Yeah, like my that idea was I
0: was going to stay there. <never> <coming back. laughs>
1: <laughs> uh-huh. So Deepa Ma had a different plan for you. Yeah. And, and, and unbeknownst to you, that plan begins to manifest. So yeah. you, you come back yeah. with no intention of of carrying out this edict no. that she had laid yeah. forth for you. But ultimately, that's that's basically what transpires. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Ramdas, said I don't know when he came back, actually, but he was back. And uh, Joseph Goldstein, whom I had met in my first retreat, and we, we were good friends, he'd come back about six months before I did. And, uh, Ramdas was teaching. Uh, Nirupa Institute had just opened up that summer in Boulder. It was their mm-hmm. inaugural summer, and is the first Buddhist institute now university in the country. And uh, Ramdas had like a mega class of like a thousand people. And Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the same one who uh-huh. said to me, you know, follow the pretense of accident. It's his school. He founded it. Wow. So he had like some of the same and some different thousand people class. And Ramdas divided his class into like the meditation subgroup and the chanting subgroup. So Joseph was doing the meditation subgroup and Jack Cornfield was there teaching mm-hmm. his own class mm-hmm. living down the hall. So the joke, although it was absolutely true, when I sort of did what I need to do in New York, was that of all the, this group of people who had gotten quite close in India, Joseph was the only one with a job and an apartment, so we all <laughs> right. went to Boulder.
1: Everybody, like, kind of flopped at his place, Yeah, right? we did. There were, yeah. like,
0: nine of us living in this one-bedroom uh-huh. apartment. And he tells this story and said it was absolutely horrible for him. He's a very meticulous person. I'm sure we drove him insane, but he said until he stopped thinking of it as his apartment. And it was just, we are all living together. Right, like
1: he was a rather fastidious yeah. gentleman.
0: Yeah. so yeah. You know, he, had to, he had
1: to have his own journey with non-attachment. That's with that. right, he
0: did. <laughs> we all moved in. huh So um, he uh, was quite popular with the students and was asked to stay on for the second summer session. So I stayed on with him. Uh, And then we were invited to teach a one month retreat, which we did. That was the first retreat we taught. So we did that. And then we were invited to teach a 10 day retreat up in, or two week retreat up in Vancouver. So I think Jack and Joseph and I all went up Mm -hmm. there and then, it was just like they were sleeping on people's living room couches right. and we had nothing. And a letter would come and say, would you come teach a retreat? And we said, oh, yeah, let's do that. You right. Know? So you're just like this traveling band of merry yeah. meditating yeah. meditation people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're getting, I mean, people are showing up for this, right? Like it's. Some people were. You yeah. Know, uh-huh. I mean, maybe if we had 35 people, 40 people, 50 people were ecstatic. Mm-hmm.
1: And ultimately this leads to you founding the Insight Meditation yeah. Society in, in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, yeah. So when what year was that? What how many we years after in that 76. was? That? Okay. So, so that was two years. So this all happens in a pretty rapid yeah. succession, yeah, yeah. right? You take yeah. over this large house and uh, monastery. <laughs> it, was mo- it was a
0: monastery. <laughs> it an abbeysian. Yeah, and you. It's a really large house. <laughs> you
1: institutionalized this, yeah. and that exists to this day, yeah, which is amazing, yeah. right? And I and I love how it was kind of uh, it was a lark, right? Like, is anybody going to show up? Like, oh, how totally. are we going to pay the mortgage at this place and totally. that kind of thing?
0: It was like, well, what happened before then was that uh, we were just like crashing at people's houses and responding to these letters, and somebody has said, I think in a, in great defense. <laughs> he said, "I have another house in Felton, like a rental property. Why don't you go there and stay there for a while?" So that's why I was so amused when Jason moved to Felton. I said, "Felton, right. that's where we started out. That was like our first address in uh-huh. this country." So we we went to this house and we did the only thing we knew how to do, which was opened it as a retreat center. So like three extra bedrooms or something like that, and uh-huh. people would come and do their own retreat and we'd feed them. And Jack Cornfield taught his first retreat ever in that living room. There were nineteen people. Wow and uh, somebody came through and he said you know why don't you start a real retreat center like and all the people i know who can really help you they're in massachusetts so we went back east uh Mm -hmm. and we looked up and down the east coast and finally found this property in barry which was a novitiate and um it cost one hundred fifty like this huge institutional building and 80 acres of land. So, of course, we didn't wow. have $150,000 uh-huh. in 1975. And so we raised $50,000. The Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament gave us a $50,000 mortgage, and we couldn't get a bank mortgage. Mm. So three very brave people personally took out loans. Wow. So we could open the door. So our mantra really for the first year was, can I always close in a year? Right. And Which didn't make them very happy. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was our mantra because who knew?
1: amazing was there a specific moment where you kind of consciously realized that Deepa Ma's, you know prophecy was coming true for you
0: I think there was and it was years later yeah I just kept thinking you know I'll do it for a while I'll do it for a few months I'll do it and then I thought mm-hmm. no this is it this is my life actually
1: yeah and I mean could you have imagined that you would have you know become this legendary teacher <laughs> no. know, gets to travel <laughs> around the world and get celebrated <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah no not at all I mean it's amazing yeah
1: it's everything it's uh it's it's quite it's been quite an amazing journey for you i would say Mm -hmm. um so i want to talk about uh this idea and you address this in the book and i've talked about this in the past on the podcast but i think it's super important and it it, it's you know the the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we get caught up in these narratives that that don't serve you you know Mm -hmm. where these stories come from and how we can you know, decouple that narrative and begin the process of telling mm-hmm. ourselves a new story.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, I also, I write about, uh, if you have a kind of a prevalent, frequent, you know, similar critical voice, like your inner critic. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what's good is like, give it a persona, give it a name, give it a wardrobe. So I named my inner critic Lucy after the right. character in the peanuts comic strip with apologies to all the Lucy's in the world. Um, I'd seen this cartoon where in the first frame, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> and then in the second frame, poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and somehow whenever I was walking by this desk, I would see that cartoon, and my eye would fall right on the line. The problem with you is that you're you because that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my early life, and I really credit my meditation training for uh, basically having a different relationship to Lucy, you know, instead of, on the one hand, believing her completely, like, you're right, Lucy, you're always right. Or on the other hand, hating her and fearing her and being ashamed and all of that. I, I realized I had two ways of approaching her. One was, hi, Lucy, like, I see you, you know. And the other was, chill out, Lucy. Right. And, you know, packed into that
1: is the idea of becoming the observer yeah. as opposed to identifying with that voice as being part and parcel of who you are. That's right. right. Like wrapping it up into your identity.
0: Yeah. And it's exa- and it actually happened very soon after I saw the cartoon. Something great happened for me. And my first thought was, it's never going to happen again. Right. And well, that's being the-, the observer was different. It's yeah. like, you're right. You know? Mm-hmm. It's the negative bias, right? And you yeah. talk
1: about this in the book as well. Like we're we're hardwired, we're predisposed to identify these these mm-hmm. negative mm-hmm. things that occur to us, and then you know choose to string those together and create this story about who we are, how we got here, and what's going to happen to us in the future. That's right, right? So yeah. to expand on that a little bit.
0: Well, I mean, I think it, it something that can be confusing for us is the difference between intentionality and coercion. And we use a lot of intentionality in these approaches because we are conditioned usually toward, say, negativity. If you're thinking about your day and almost like evaluating yourself, like how well did I do today, it's not uncommon to pretty well only think about the mistakes and what you didn't do that well and you didn't show up that well and you didn't say that really great. Or, And it takes intentionality to kind of say anything else happened today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not... Hypocrisy—it's not denying that there were issues, you know—but um, it's not all that happened, right? So to get to a truer, bigger picture, we have to actually move our attention consciously toward the good. Mm-hmm. You know, anything good happened today? Any good within me? Um, and and that kind of elasticity or flexibility of attention is also part of the meditative process. Um, but it begins really with seeing the story, because. Not only do we tell stories about ourselves, but others tell stories about us. Right. And so um, th- those can be very unconscious. And we
1: tell stories about other people. And we tell stories right. about other
0: people, exactly. You know, there's some somebody... I also tell this story in the book. Somebody um, told me, a writer friend of mine, he'd given a lecture somewhere. And in the course of the lecture, he mentioned how reading Proust remembrances of things past have been so crucial for him at some stage of his development. And he was at dinner after the lecture and and a group of people came up to him, this woman came forth and his his assumption about her, his thought about her was, Oh, she looks like poorly educated, you know, she's probably not very smart. Mm -hmm. And then she said to him, I was at your lecture so his heart kind of sank, you know, what's she gonna say? And then she said, I just want to say that I find reading Proust in the original French much more fulfilling. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> uh-huh. well, all right. <laughs> you know.
1: So in thinking about that, like I'm I'm thinking about, you know, of course the story I tell myself about myself, but also the story that I tell about the other people that I encounter throughout my day. And that story is generally reflective of my own state of mind and how mm-hmm. I feel about myself. Mm-hmm. Like if mm-hmm. I feel good about myself, I'm probably going to tell a more flattering version of Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. these other people that i encounter throughout my day um but when you when you really kind of analyze it like you realize like over the course of your life, billions of things have happened to you. Yeah. Billions, yeah. right? And we extract out, you know, these 10 things That's that right. happen over the course yeah. of our life and why we, we identify with them so deeply, so thoroughly that they infect and invade, you know, every how we see ourselves, every decision that we make, how we interact with other people, the words that come out of our mouth, the kind of entertainment we choose to, you know, enjoy, whatever. It like it's it's amazing how pervasive mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And it's so cemented that the idea of even looking at that or being critical of the veracity of that, let alone reframing it, is something I think most people don't even begin to engage in. Do
2: you agree? That's true. (laughs) That's
0: absolutely true. Um, Which is why I think seeing the story is maybe it's the first and the most critical step because a lot of people don't even believe that. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I was teaching somewhere and somebody said, I don't really see how others can tell stories about us because they don't know us. How could they be telling a story about us? And I said, I think everything is telling a story about us. I mean, architecture tells a story about us. Uh, the retreat center, I co-founded the Insight Meditation Society. just um, We built on this sort of structure so that people in wheelchairs can come in the front door and it's really big mm-hmm. and not very pretty, you know, uh, because previously people in wheelchairs had to go around the side and then down the back, you know, it's snowy and cooky and uh, it wasn't the right story, you know, to be telling people about belonging or inclusion. Right. And so, you know, we raised all this money, we built this thing, and I find it personally very treacherous because I learned—I was a New Yorker. I learned how to drive when I was older, right? And I'm not that great a driver, and I'm parked <laughs> somewhere beyond, and I have to like back out. You know, it's like protruding into the driveway, and and I really don't like it, but it's the right story. Mm-hmm. You know, and we don't realize how much we're impacted by all of those uh, views coming toward us about who we are, mm-hmm. and it, it takes a great deal of integrity to have a sense of, though, this is who I am," actually.
1: Mm-hmm. And the process of of really engaging that comes back again to honing your attention. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and you kind of lay it out in the book in this four step process that you call rain. Right? Can you walk
0: me through that? Sure. Rain is something that is often used, especially when. Um, A difficult emotion comes up, but you can use it many, many ways. So let's say anger comes up uh, in your experience. Rather than dismissing it or explaining it or hating yourself for it or plotting revenge, you want to just look at the feeling. And this is something that's rare with strong emotion. Usually we get so captivated by the object. Like if you really, really want something, you think about the thing. Like I just bought a new car, you know, so it's like what color, and you know, Mm -hmm. what what thing, what feature, we very rarely kind of pivot our attention to look at the feeling itself. Like, what does it feel like to want something so much? Or what does it feel like to be so angry or so frightened? So that 1st that's the first step. It's kind of pivoting. And then we apply this acronym RAIN. The first is recognize what's happening. Like, oh, it's anger. Uh, the second is acknowledge it or accept it. You know, don't add on to it the shame and the... Distress and the fear Mm -hmm. and all of that. Just be with it as it is. Uh, The third is eyes, investigate. You know, look into it. Not why is it here and what am I going to do about it. But if we really look at a state of anger, we will likely see fear. We will see sadness. We may see grief. We'll likely see helpless helplessness, and we have a much clearer sense of what is actually cooking. You know, below Mm -hmm. the surface, and. We also see it's constantly changing. Look at that. You know, it has just kind of this nature of uh arising and passing away. And then and not non-identification is, you know, you don't have to fall into I'm such an angry person, I will be forever. This itself is a passing state. And um it's a very different way of being with those kinds of emotions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things you talk about in the book, you know, a lot of people their entry point for meditation is this desire to quell the monkey mind right like i've got it's just my mind i can't you know it's insane and and you had a kind of interesting take on that like it's not about getting rid of that as much as it is not identifying with it or Mm -hmm. coming into a different kind of relationship with that yeah
0: yeah. i think it's very much about coming into a different kind of relationship with that because you can't get rid of it you know i mean that that's first of all a hopeless task and uh, it's very embattled, you know, it's like mm-hmm. tiring. And maybe more than anything these days, if I'm introduced as a meditation teacher, well, probably more than anything, people will respond with, I'm so stressed out, I could use some of that. But second comes, I tried that once, I failed at it. Right. Because that's what people's notion is, I should have a totally blank mind, I shouldn't have any thoughts, I should have only beautiful thoughts, anxiety shouldn't come back, I shouldn't get sleepy. Whereas we say that the essence of the meditation is not what's happening, it's how we're relating to what's happening. And so any of that might happen, but you could be different with it. You could be more centered, you could be more balanced, you could Mm -hmm. be more aware, you could be kinder. Uh, All of that comes into play as we evolve in the meditation. So it's not that easy to describe as a metric. You know, It's easier to say, well, that doesn't happen anymore, or I don't get distracted anymore, but to say, I come back from distraction more gracefully with a better sense of humor. Mm -hmm. That's not that easy, but that's really what happens.
1: Yeah, it's a gradual thing. I mean, you tell the story uh, in the book of dropping the glass, right? Like thinking that this practice is not... Really doing anything for you until you have this situation where you drop this this class and you don't react the way you usually do. You react with sort of a you know a more loving (laughs) response to yourself, right? Yeah. But I think ancillary, like sort of tangentially related to this idea of you know people saying I tried meditation, it didn't work for me because you know my monkey mind's out of control. Like baked into that is this sense of of like perfectionism, right? Like yeah. if I can't do it perfect, I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> you know, holding yourself to this certain standard and the kind of, you know, violence that's yeah. associated yeah. with yeah. that and and how that's really anti-love, right? Yeah. It's yeah. isolating and it's 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 separating yourself from others and yourself. So totally. can you elaborate yeah. on that a well, little bit? Well, one of
0: the pillars of self-compassion as a psychological theory in current western psychology is um understanding we're part of a human family. You know, like when you blow it, you're not the only person in life who's ever done that. And and that's a big ingredient in that kind of changed relationship, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, it's not laziness or, or excuses for what you've done or are doing, but it's understanding this is part of the human condition. And we can pick up. We can begin again. This is resilience, in effect. And so um, we do have notions of perfection, never thinking that perfection really... It never lasts, you know, like you have the perfect piece of fruit and it starts to decay Mm -hmm. or I just bought a new car. And it's like, honestly, when I left it, someone had pooped on it, some creature and bird, obviously, (laughs) not a bear. But uh, it was like, oh, no, I can't believe it. (laughs) You know, like, where's my perfect car? Right. Like making peace with the fact that
1: truly nothing is static. Like our human brains want to believe that, you know there will always be democracy in america well maybe i'm not so sure right now you know what i mean like just certain things that we take for granted like my wife will always be there and i'll always live in this house and all of these things and 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 it's scary to think that that you know to really embrace that impermanence but but there's a freedom in that right that allows you to decouple from you know these this sense of perfectionism and other traits that well yeah it's
0: free because it's true you know it's like Sound like this fanciful spiritual notion you're trying to superimpose on reality. It is reality. Mm-hmm. And the further we get from reality, the more we hurt. Right. Because we're like banging our head against the wall.
1: You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. politics ambition gender roles and more listen to the conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media there is so much health information out there Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. One of the, the benefits for me of mindfulness practice and meditation is developing a, you know, sort of a more uh, objective and expansive understanding of of certain character traits and my relationship to them with the extent to which they lead me astray or, you know, propel me forward. So an example of that in my case is, you know, self-will, like for my whole life, I thought everything good that ever happened to me is because I buckled down and worked hard for it, worked harder for than anybody else. I overcame this talent deficit gap and was able to like get shit done. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's that same, uh, same trait that has led me down many a dark alley, mm-hmm. right? Like, sort of that self reliance um, has detached me from, you know, a mm-hmm. greater mm-hmm. sense of, uh, you know, engagement mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and when I was struggling with drugs and alcohol, it was mm-hmm. the key, mm-hmm. you know, preventative element from mm-hmm. me allowing myself mm-hmm. to get sober because I, I associated surrender with defeat or That's weakness, right. yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about like how our relationship with our? character traits and you know how we can develop Mm -hmm. you know a better understanding of how they work Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. you know transcend them
0: well i think that holds true even for the stories we tell ourselves i mean a lot of those stories served a very useful purpose in some stage of development you know when you were putting your alcoholic parents to bed, or you know you were all alone and trying to struggle you know uh i mean you you know your story but because i don't know your story but um you know, when one is, is weaving a story to uh, survive, basically, you know, one's circumstances, often as a child, that's a useful story. But when right. it becomes the singular story, then we're stuck. And you. it becomes very difficult to let go of that. It's very difficult. Right? To because let you go have it. identified so completely with it. And it served you to some extent, Right. you know, and may no longer be serving and you, you want at it, you're, all.
1: you You. And you you become blind to how it's not serving you yeah, right because yeah. you are so self-identified yeah, with it. Yeah. And so how do we work our way out of that? Well, it all comes back to honing your attention, <laughs> honing right? Your
0: attention. And these practices of mindfulness and meditation. Yes, yeah. definitely. But since you mentioned recovery, you know, uh, there's an amazing role for community as well. You know, it's like that fellowship in the recovery community, um, is magnificent. I, I wish I could redesign, you know, a 12 step group for everything. Yeah. You know, everything. Well, the principles are applicable to every yeah.
1: human being and whatever they're challenged by.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, think. I've worked with people and I <laughs> looked at them and they have you know, terrible family situations. And I said, please tell me someone drinks so right. you can go to on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like, please. Uh-huh. And she said, sorry, I don't drink. I said, right. Well, you know? Um, but because that plays a strong role too. It's like we f- we reformulate. Our sense of what's normal, mm-hmm. you know, in in human relationship through relationship, mm-hmm. and uh, that that can be very powerful as well. But mm-hmm. I th- a tremendous amount comes back to honing attention, right? And the the journey,
1: really, you know, at the at this, at, you know, at the risk of sort of re- being reductionist about this whole thing, is that you, know, you really have to. Engage this inward journey and embrace it. If you want to get to this place of not completion, but you know sufficient wholeness, where you can love yourself and and be capable of of, of loving another, and mm-hmm. not looking to someone else. You know, it's like that idea. You know, that Jerry Maguire, like you complete me, is you know such a a lie that so many people buy into, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, quite honestly, leads them astray and further away from what they're seeking.
0: Yeah. Definitely, and, and you'll find it everywhere. You know, it's just like pulverizing us that message, mm-hmm. you know, from every direction. And, and uh, that's all, another role for community, actually, is like people to step away together from the uh, prevalent messaging of the society and to reinforce the strength. Say, I want to look differently. I want to look at it from another angle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a, we're having an amazing moment
1: right now because. meditation and mindfulness, these things are now very much of the zeitgeist, you know, and for the majority of your career, they really weren't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And I I would imagine that this cuts both ways for you. You know, on the one hand, it's kind of amazing. Now there's all this science and people are talking about these ideas that you've been teaching for so long. And it must be very gratifying on a certain level to see the mainstream consciousness uh, adapting and adopting these mm-hmm. tactics and practices, but at the same time, I would imagine there's some level of you know kind of uh, bastardization of you know these these principles and traditions that you hold so dear mm-hmm. as they become kind of diluted so that they can mm-hmm. be digestible mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. average mm-hmm. human being. Mm-hmm. So how do you like? What is your opinion? Definitely. On all
0: that? Well, sometimes I identified myself just this morning to somebody as I guess being on the left-wing fringe of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the orthodoxy, because I am of the orthodoxy. You know, I had, a you could say, a classical education. Um, and I, I really studied with immensely wonderful teachers. Mm-hmm. And my own teacher told me to teach. That's the old-fashioned way. You know, many, many people come up to me and say, I'm a mindfulness teacher, and I don't even know what that means anymore. It used to be I'd say, well, who was your teacher? Because then I'd know something like, they said "tik Not han." I think a social action. If they said somebody else, I think, oh, you know, that's like intense concentration or mm-hmm. whatever. But I don't even know what it means anymore. Um, anybody can be a mindfulness. Anybody can be mindfulness. No, no, for No, it. no Go barrier
1: for it. to <laughs> entry. Right? It's the
0: wild west. You know, there's no licensing. There's nothing. But on the one hand, I am I am of the far left wing because I think it's great. I, I think it's tremendous. So many times, somebody will come up to me and say. I'm a mindfulness teacher and the next thing I'll say is I'm teaching that hellish prison. And I think, well, I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. God bless you. That's great. Uh, you know, people are sincerely motivated and mostly and and uh really doing a great service to a lot of people. You know, I have great issues around a couple of things. One is the nature of the training. Um there's an emphasis these days in this society, in this time, on scaling, as though that was mm-hmm. the the greatest virtue you know that fewer people going to a greater depth is not enough it needs to be more and more and more people doing the thing even if it's quite superficially and so that means you need more and more and more instructors or you need you know and so how are they trained you know are they trained or Mm -hmm. are they just out there and it's not good for them as people the instructors and it's not really serving the other people i was reading a study the other day um that, you know, the headline was surprising to me. It said something like, mindfulness, in contradiction to many other studies, mindfulness does not um, lead to empathy. And I thought, I don't get that because I've read so many studies, and I know it anyway, but, you know, I've read so many studies that show the opposite. So then I was reading the actual study, and it turned out that the training, the mindfulness training was five minutes long. (laughs) Literally, (laughs) it was five (laughs) minutes long. and, And I thought, oh, my God. And then... The you know the principal investigator and people were challenged about that and they said well these other studies were just using five minutes of meditation and they showed something or other so that was like the standard and I thought five minutes is like you know yes. <laughs> not uh, enough <laughs> right 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 I mean that there's still a long way to
1: go yeah like, that's what I read <laughs> into that um, but there is something about you know the 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 respect for the teacher you know what I mean I mean right now it's like we have access to you know at our fingertips in our in everybody's pocket you know you have the universe available to you and you can access these practices whether it's through headspace or dan's app 10 Percent happier yeah. i know you you're yeah. involved yeah. in that and you know there's a, there's a plethora of other ones that probably vary in quality the good information is available but there's also you know a lot of garbage so it requires a little bit more discernment but that tactile experience of like sitting at the foot of a master yeah, yeah. you know we've sort of gotten away from that yeah, you know yeah. and and i think there's a reverence for that that we should perhaps appreciate a little bit more fully
0: yeah i i think it's it's a beautiful thing and it's like my you know when my friend joseph glistin was um first in asia he was actually in the peace corps and he was uh just a school teacher uh teaching english and he said when he walked into the room, his, he was in Thailand, his students would bow because it's a culture of respect for the teacher, you know, and like we we're like hurling chairs at our teachers, right. and, you know, like. Yeah, you know. it's different. It's different.
1: Um, you know, on some level, though, I guess the counterpoint is, I mean, you know, in my personal story, like when I got out of rehab, like I started going to yoga and I went to the yoga class in Brentwood where they played hip hop music and there was lots of pretty girls. And I don't know whether I would have gone to yoga otherwise, but that was my welcome mat. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to walk in the door and I've since gone on a journey with that, that has taken me to a very different place. But, but had I been told like, you have to do it this way and you've got to find this kind of teacher, like I might not have walked through that door to begin with. So there's a, you have to kind of, um, have a respect for the individual and say, look, let's just... Get you attract let's dangle this like yeah, shiny yeah. object yeah, yeah, in yeah. front of you you know what i mean yeah. and trust that if this resonates with you that you'll then grab that and and take it to a different
0: place yeah i mean i think that's very true and and that um you know as a teacher like you kind of have to find your own place like what feels right to you in terms of the context the languaging the uh, you know do you teach a yoga class where people chant om or do they mm-hmm. you know think they're stretching um, right. it could be anything and it's all beneficial to someone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a, as an individual looking for a system or a teacher, I think I, I know it's a weird and awkward way of saying it, but I usually say you have to be a consumer. You know, you have to feel what's right for you and go there, you know, don't hang out with the people in the place and the, mm-hmm. where you feel like, Oh, this is weird, you know? Right. Yeah. Because then you're not
1: in the long run, you're going to tap out right yeah, yeah but on this subject of teachers you know ramdas talks about this like we you know in our in our culture we have great reverence for the intellectuals you know and he uses lincoln and einstein and we put mm-hmm. these people up on a pedestal and or or athletes right lebron james you know michael jordan with these people these are the people that that are the icons of our culture what we don't do is celebrate the spiritual masters mm-hmm. you know the 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 great teachers of of developing consciousness like they mm-hmm. do in india you know and i could see you as a young person mm-hmm. in india like realizing that's very much the culture there yeah right yeah, that yeah. respect and that yeah. reverence for these these individuals that hold that you know capacity that we just lack in our western yeah. culture yeah you know is there <clears throat> like can we shift that like can do you see a future in which we can develop that kind of reverence or you could see the ascension of of these kinds of consciousness Uh uh you know consciousness wielding individuals um you know holding that kind of stature
0: Uh i think i can and i think it's going to come about in a kind of strange way because uh, as i was listening to you just now i started thinking about my first trip to the soviet union and going to the um grave of different grave sites of different poets and you'd think these people were rock stars Mm -hmm. you know and and we don't treat poets that way either, necessarily, or artists, or you know. And I think this is the kind of time where, when people talk about social action and social justice and movements, I always say, "Well, what about the artists? You know, like I have a feeling that's going to lead the mm-hmm. the way." And and uh, you know, people express their deepest values in different ways and have different strengths. But I think that there's, there's going to be a whole breakaway of communication and expression. Through art, through through all those those media, and I think that's going to bring about a whole other sense of consciousness, mm-hmm. which will include kind of strict consciousness movements and you know people teaching meditation and things like that. Right. I think it's uh, it's going to form the kind of radical edge.
2: Yeah, actually.
1: I would like to see that. I yeah. would like to see that yeah. happen. Well, we're certainly in a moment where, you know, we need art desperately yeah. for yeah. sure. And I could see that, you know, I, I think the, the, that there's, you know, a fertile environment yeah. for that yeah. to occur. You know, but at the same time, we're, you know, we're more distracted than ever. Yeah. You know, yeah. these devices yeah. that we have that we think are are connecting us more deeply with our fellow human are actually alienating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I have a weird relationship with social media because of what I do, like I'm very connected and tapped in and, and it's allowed me to connect with amazing people. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I've been yeah. able to meet in person, you know, phenomenal individuals all across yeah. the world as a result of that platform uh-huh. but i have to keep my relationship with it in check so that i'm not just yeah. sitting at home
2: yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. like, you know what kids disconnected
0: right oh. so
1: <laughs> so it's like yeah i can use the 10% happier app or i can use headspace yeah. and 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 yet that's not a replacement for being out in the world yeah. and and yeah. cultivating yeah. you know community and yeah. and these things so how do you talk about that when you when you're teaching these principles
0: well i think it's really true and i think it is a matter of restraint and I also I love technology and I I think of myself often at the age of 18 going off to India and like so scared and so determined and I you know I'd never even been to California before Mm -hmm. when I went to India and but I needed to go to India you don't have to go to India as you say anymore and uh, very very fine teachings and and approaches are available through your phone Um, but what's missing is the community aspect often and so Uh, It can't replace having a living sense of some connection with another human being, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it often does. And so I think it's tremendously freeing when I've taught things online, you know, and I've seen, um, you know, people in Poland doing it or, you know, people all over the world doing it. And uh, it's amazing to me that it really is kind of this global community now you know it's not it's not yeah, it allows restricted. these ideas to travel yeah you know, instantaneously it's amazing people can have the experience you know they don't have to th- think wistfully of like if only like i could get a visa you know or, right. or whatever it might be but we we i think definitely need first of all we need discipline you know because i have a friend who um every time we have dinner together we'll tweet it out each of us will tweet i having dinner mm-hmm. with so and so and once we were in a restaurant doing that and somebody knew him and they came up to him and said, Are you gonna to talk to each other at all? Or are you right. just gonna stay on your phones all the whole time? And was, yeah, people do stay on their phones all the whole time. Yeah. The optics are not great. No, if two, like, are not great. Meditation teachers are <laughs> yeah. on their phones sitting across from each other at yeah, a restaurant. Really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just what it looked like. It's yeah. just what it was. Uh-huh. Um But I, I think you know, we can be reason we can learn to be reasonable about it. The other thing people tell me, uh, like I have a professor friend who was talking about his students and he said people, his students, he felt, really used the media of, of you know, online communication, social media, uh, just as a means of comparison and kind of putting other people down. Like, mm-hmm. people don't post a photo of their imperfect meal. Mm-hmm. Of um, course. You know, and and I said, I first I said, I, I wonder if that's an age thing, because my people are usually posting, like, about their shoulder surgery or something <laughs> like that, you know, <laughs> our aches and pains and complaints. But... Um, there's something about that, you know, that some consciousness that needs to enter. Like, what are we really trying to communicate? Mm-hmm. And if we feel completely inauthentic over and over and over again because it's just some act, you know, then it's clearly not serving us and, and we need to find that somewhere else. Yeah, it, it requires discernment. You
1: know, I mean, you can use that to, to, again, go back to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. You can use that um, to fuel that story that's not serving you. Look at how much better everybody else is doing. Everybody's doing yeah. great. I'm doing terrible. It's never going to happen for me. Yeah. You know, whatever that self-defeating narrative is. Yeah. So, and, and that discernment is a journey towards self-love, right? Yeah. So back, yeah. To, back to, back to, you know, <laughs> back to real love. And, and within that is, you know, judgment, right? And so how do we, you know, and healthy boundaries, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Right. So how do we, exercise healthy boundaries in the practice of real love and self-love like when we're you know if there's people in our life that you know that we need to exercise from our experience you know what i mean like like how do you do that in a way that's still compassionate Mm -hmm, like how mm -hmm. you know
0: you know what i'm talking about yeah i mean one of the, the things we would say is is really having a sense of clarity about where in a way like where love and compassion reside which we would say is in one's motivation or intention it's not in the action so it's like it's like the same as tough love you know mm-hmm. um, or fierce compassion uh, the the arena of the psyche that is supposed to be most transformed through the practice of or deepening of loving kindness and compassion is the arena of motivation or intention so if for example you have largely been motivated by fear and what you do or what you say or what you hold back from doing or saying and you deep in these qualities you'll be largely motivated by a sense of connection you know but that doesn't determine what you'll do Mm -hmm. you know out of that care that connection even that kindness in the moment there's a there's a real discernment that needs to take place which is very very contextual you know in this moment in this particular point in time in this relationship what do i feel is the most skillful way to say this or most skillful thing to do is it yes or no Mm -hmm. Is he giving them the money or not giving them the money? And, you know, we make mistakes for sure. I call it our best guess, but it's, it's discernment. It's different than the care. And we conflate those two. And that's the place where people often say, well, I don't know about that love thing. You know, then I can only be sweet and say yes.
1: Right. It gets, it gets
0: murky if you're a people pleaser.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because then you think. Self love or loving others is, is, is basically just always being available to, the, to right. what they want and, and doing what they want to do. And that's, that's, right. that's a lack of self-love, yeah, right? Because right. you, you yeah. aren't discerning and you're not creating a healthy boundary.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to. And so uh, I would say, I, so in teaching, I go over that point again and again and again and again. You know, they're different. You can be coming from a really loving motive, a really loving place, and your best guess of the right way to act in this moment in time is really fierce. It's really intense. It's having a strong boundary. It's saying no. I'm not going to give you more money. No, you can't move in again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't have to feel like that indicates a lack of love in your heart because it doesn't necessarily at all. And the way you know the difference is by looking, you know, right. is by paying attention.
1: This is all a journey towards self-actualization and, and, and really, you know, embodying your most authentic self, Mm -hmm. right. And, and getting to a place where you can trust your instincts Mm -hmm. and those impulses that arise are the signals that, you know, are the, the light, the lampposts Mm -hmm. on your, on your path. But if you're, I think it gets confusing because if you're not in a good place, or if those impulses and instincts are being driven by, addiction or that unhealthy narrative then they're not they're not trustworthy instincts Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so how do you how do you know when you can trust them and 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 allow them to light your path and when do you know like you know what like i need some more i got to do a little bit of more work before i can trust whatever's arising in me
0: yeah well i mean it's never bad to have the thought i need to do some more work yeah because we usually all need to do some more work but i think some of that has to do with community sometimes like other people saying you really should chill, you know, that was, that was kind of harsh. right? Uh, and sometimes it has to do with just buying time. Like I have a friend who, who said she could never say no to people. And so in her meditation practice, one day she kind of brought up in her mind that kind of scenario as an act of creative imagination, like when she was asked a question where she really should say no. And she felt what was happening in her body, this kind of almost panic, that would viscerally start taking over like they won't love me anymore you know whatever and she used that that sensation as a kind of feedback system so that when she was in an actual situation like at work and somebody would ask her that very kind of question and she would feel that sort of panic begin to come over her she would say i can't answer you quite yet or i need a little time like she couldn't say no Mm -hmm. but if she had more time she could say no so she right. really it's like, it's
1: like uh uh writing out that email but not sending it. That's right, exactly. <laughs> write out the email yeah. but
0: don't send it. And so, you know, you need certain curbs in place, like that, you know, that is a matter of discipline. Rome's play, you know, like I'm gonna today whenever I write an email, I'm not gonna send it right away or something like that. That's a discipline. Um but within that you can you also need to be kind to yourself, you know, and not say I'm like a wretched person. I can never say no. You can say, Oh, look at this, here's that habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to let it hold sway again.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you create, you know, healthy boundaries around yourself when you know everybody wants a piece of you? You know, you know, it's it's like a it's it can be like a vampiric thing, right? Yeah. If you if you don't have that boundary, like everyone's sucking you dry. And mm-hmm. and as a teacher, and as somebody who's holding a certain frequency that people want and and you know gravitate towards you, you got to take care of yourself, or you yeah. can't yeah. take care of
0: them. Yeah. No, it's true, and, and that. First of all, you need to remember that very fact, yeah, you know that that's very true, and then, um you know, I feel really lucky. I still have teachers, and I still consider myself a student, and I still practice and uh, without that, I can't even imagine you know what it would be like and right and I think there's something about authenticity which is very important because sometimes in trying to please that image. You know, and right, you have to live up to, to, live up to yeah. you
1: know, this idea of who everybody thinks. That's you right. Are. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, which is it's crazy. Like training.
0: You know, I just told this story like a a couple of trips ago. I was in the San Francisco airport, and my flight was six and a half hours late. And I was fine for five and a half hours. <laughs> I was really mm-hmm. mellow, and then I was like really getting impatient and. uh and just then, somebody came up to me and said, "Are you Sharon Salzberg?" Right. And I thought, "Damn, you know, I like, should have come up an hour ago. You yeah. know, I was in a much better place."
1: Or somebody taking a video of you chewing out the airline person That's right. you know, And then <laughs> yeah. it goes viral. On
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nobody wants that. Nobody wants that.
1: You know? Uh, yeah. It's it's got to be difficult. I would imagine. So, what does your practice
0: look like? Um, I practice every day. Uh, different lengths my goal is to try to do like 40 minutes a day if not all at once then in chunks you Mm -hmm. know um i try to practice in informal times like walking down the streets of especially with loving kindness uh walking down the streets of new york city or sitting on an airplane silently repeating may you be happy or may all beings be happy uh which is quite fun it's a whole other way of being Uh in new york um And I try to do retreats at least periodically, but it's the, I think it's the everydayness of it that really saves me.
1: Right. So there's the formal part of the practice and then there's carrying that into your interactions in the world, which is a form of practice in and of itself. Right. Yeah. So what are the, what are the challenges that you still face? Like when you have, like, what are the, what are the things that you're working on overcoming or improving on?
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's some of it is, like, this energy gap, you know? It's like every time I feel like I'm, like, at the right level of energy, something more is asked of me. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm always in a gap pretty well and and needing to, you know, somehow meet that. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges I have is just, like, it's not exactly a challenge. It's more like a a process, you know, of feeling like... um, it's it's a little strange when people kind of know your name, you know. Mm-hmm. And but the things that make you happy are the things that always made you happy, you know, which are very simple. And so, remembering that that's what counts, you know, and that's that's a life, that's your life, and it's simply being with friends, or it's simply hanging out, or looking at the flowers, or I like the light in LA a lot, you know, mm-hmm. just looking at the light, and and uh, remembering that that's my life, you know, and everything else is like this overlay that exists somewhere else. And
1: and how does that get reconciled with, you know, this idea, you know, like of the Buddha, like I'm working towards enlightenment, you know what I mean? Like it it can be very achievement oriented. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I can get there, you know, (laughs) because I really like meditation as an art form and which is why, you know, I'd like to devote more time again to it just uh for the sheer you know art form of it you know and and the places one can go and in one's mind and consciousness and things like that um i don't feel like driven to get enlightened in this lifetime i think it's likely to take more than one lifetime (laughs) Uh, but i do feel it's possible you know i don't i don't um think the ultimate goal of meditation is to be a little less stressed out yeah You know, I think that there are things we're capable of as human beings, as ordinary human beings, uh, in the matters of wisdom and love that are incredible. And sure, I would like to be there, you know, and and I, I've never lost sight of that, you know, that possibility. Have you met people that you feel are truly enlightened beings? Yeah. I mean, I think Deepin for example, although she would never say she was completely done, you know, that would be, I mean, I can't even imagine her saying that, um, but she would be an example, and like the most super humble person you can imagine. And her, her love, her compassion was also very maternal. It would be like, would you like another cup of tea? You know, or can I get you something? Or how was your journey? Or, right, just grounded in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you make of these stories that you hear? You know, more in the Hindu tradition of these you know, famous you know yogis that go into the cave and don't eat for months on end or become yeah. breathitarians, or, yeah. you know, these crazy stories of, you know, you hear these insane stories, right. Of like, they're, they have superpowers almost, right. Are these apocryphal? Like, what no, do you I don't make think, I don't that? think they're,
0: I mean, some of them are probably apocryphal, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, some of them are probably completely untrue, <laughs> but, uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think there's, um, at least in the Buddhist tradition, there's, uh, at some schools of the buddhist tradition there's a pretty clear delineation between paths of power and paths of wisdom you know so if you if you develop really 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 strong concentration only pretty much only that's a path of power because you're taking like the energy of the universe and bringing it to yourself and mm-hmm. um, it's from that place that people develop what we would call psychic powers or paranormal abilities so and it's from a place of mindfulness and clear seeing and wisdom that we develop qualities like love. And, you know, so it's very different. Um, although they, they support one another sometimes, but you could develop power without love. And then all you've got is power. The so, dark
2: power. The dark power.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So they said Deepama, for example, my teacher, uh, in her youth, she was trained in those concentration techniques. And she could do things like that. And, like what? Walk through walls, or uh, really? you know, um, go back in time and hear the Buddha give a talk, or uh, go back in time and see where you were in your previous life, or uh, visit different realms of ex- existence, or um, things like that. She could, you know, mm-hmm. so or you hear those New Crowley Baba stories about right. reading your minds and so yeah. Like Right. So I have or if friends. you read like autobiography of a yogi, there's yeah. lots of stories yeah. in there about stuff like that. Yeah. So I have a fr- I have friends who like are completely freaked out at the notion of Deepa Ma walking through a wall. You know, yeah. and I say, I mean, well, that's that's heavy, right? Yeah. Like, but it's like know? it's so irrelevant to who she was. You know, like people do t- talk about. I mean, they say that she could take a potato and bake it in her hand and make it taste like chocolate. But people don't ever, yeah. I mean, who cares? I mean, no matter how much you or, like chocolate. You didn't like
1: Neem Karoli, was it Neem Karoli? No, it was, was it Neem Karoli Baba? No, maybe it was Maharishi who took like a bunch of acid and it didn't, Mahari, nothing, yeah, nothing, it was Neem happen, Baba. nothing happened, nothing right? happened. That was
2: Neem
0: yeah. Baba, yeah. yeah. Maybe, I don't yeah. know, did, but <laughs> definitely Neem Karoli Baba. And, you know, so, but I say to them, those very friends, I say, well, do you believe... Some of those new Curly Baba stories about him knowing what was happening with your family in the States, which you didn't even know about yet, or and they said, "Oh, absolutely," because that's the mind, that's not materiality. But if you ask somebody who you know has studied it, they'll say, "Well, what they do is they say, you know, material stuff is said to be made of earth, air, water, and space, earth, air, water, and fire, and space, and they can separate the elements. Mm-hmm. So apparently, when somebody like Deepak looks at that wall." she sees the space. That's what she goes through. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a, it seems like almost like a less cultured or sophisticated attainment than your mind being able to, you know, it's it's considered very, it's like fundamental in a way. So, um, I don't get why it's so uh, bizarre to people compared to the other bizarre things that we experience and accept. Yeah, right? I guess it's, a, it's how you it's how you frame it, right? Yeah. I
1: mean, it's so beyond our yeah. imagination to you know yeah. b- believe that somebody could do that but yeah. Yeah. you know and we could go down that rabbit hole for a long time that's cr- that's crazy stuff now. Yeah. but we should land this plane um <laughs> <laughs>
2: we'll get we'll get
1: back to the more grounded space here you know people uh, there's a lot of people that listen to this that are you know they're into they're into meditation they're into mindful Practices. There's also a lot of people that flirt with the idea and don't actually do it. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, I, you know, the times now. Like I'm, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm down with Sharon How can I begin? You know, how how can I begin this journey? Like, how, how can you kickstart somebody into mm-hmm. uh, this adventure?
0: I think these days there's so many ways you can get Dan Harris's app, for example, Ten mm-hmm. Percent Happier, or another app you know that you you feel interested in, or a book. Um, Or a class, you know, I think the important thing is just enough clarity in the beginning so you don't torture yourself by ideas of what should be happening. And that doesn't take much. But some some reassurance, like, yes, it's normal to be thinking. It's okay that you always get distracted. You can just begin again. That's the point. And with that, then it's a question of your own practice. And so I usually say, maybe whatever's comfortable for you, 15 minutes a day for a month or 10 minutes a day for a month. Just do that, you know, and then you'll see if you want to do it. Yeah, make a commitment that's reasonable, yeah. you know, that's
1: not so outlandish that you're going to abandon it three days in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, create a little accountability around it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. you talk about this a lot, like, you know, tell people this is what you're going to do yeah. and, and, and get yourself on the hook. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that at least there's a little you know not shame but like you know you're going to feel like y- you know you're you're a little emotionally invested in this yeah. and there's yeah. some support for you you know and if you don't have anybody in your town or whatever or any friends that are going to be of like mind then seek it virtually you know yeah. use that computer yeah. in your pocket and and find groups online and yeah. And, yeah. and these apps have accountability built into them as well like reminders and you know little things it's like true. that that can that can it's allow true. you to do that do you have like a uh, a um, loving-kindness practice that you could kind of share, Somebody could that somebody could walk away from this and, sure. and start to do?
0: Sure. I mean, uh, the simplest one is probably choose, like, two or three phrases that are the gift you would like to give to yourself, like, may I be peaceful, may I calm down, <laughs> you know. Or, but they need to be big enough so you can then use the same, pretty much the same phrases for others. Uh, so that's why people use things like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Mm-hmm. And just sit quietly for a few moments and make that offering to yourself. And just keep repeating the phrases. Your mind will wander everywhere. Don't worry about that. Uh, you can let go of the distractions one by one. It's okay. And just come back to the phrases. Don't like count on some you know tremendous feeling coming up. And uh, just do it a little bit. Then think of somebody you really care about. Uh, usually someone who's helped you. They, even if you've never met them, they've inspired you. Um. And offer the phrases to them. Even if the words don't seem perfect, they're like a conduit for that way of connecting. And then, just for fun, have that person offer the phrases back to you. Mm-hmm. So that you're in the position of the recipient.
1: Yeah, that's a weird feeling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That brings up all kinds of weird emotions. It does. You know, it's it interesting when you do that.
0: Yeah, so I just gave you a very provocative exercise
1: rather than one that's... that's, good.
2: What about
0: like, you know, sometimes like I'll
1: develop a resentment against somebody else and and it will like monopolize my thinking and it really undermines the quality of my day or my week, right? So... Uh, you know, in recovery, they say, like, you know, pray for that person, like, wish them well. So there's a I'm sure there's a loving kindness version of that Mm -hmm. where you're like, wishing well on that person, because you're the one who's suffering as a result of that resentment, right? And the the path to freedom is by, you know, decoupling yourself from that emotion.
0: Exactly. And I I wouldn't neglect, in that case, loving kindness for yourself. Uh, I would intermingle it, either start with yourself and move to that person or uh, do yourself together may we be happy may we be peaceful because you're right you know of course co- resentment is such a corrosive relentless feeling and uh, it's so obsessive it's like the amount of time any of us can spend going through the list of someone's faults and then we go through it again and then again and then again and then again and you know it's very tiring mm. beautiful i think we did it all right how do you feel I feel great. You feel good? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, The work you do is very meaningful, and I hope that you continue to do it. Um, The new book is fantastic. Uh, Everybody should pick it up, along with the other 8 billion books that you've (laughs) written. You've written, what, 10 now? This is number 10. This is number 10, right? And you have a podcast right i seem to yeah the meta hour (laughs) right yeah so it's really great i i uh in the course of preparing for this i listened to a bunch of episodes and i really enjoyed it so that's very cool as well and in the course of rolling out this book i'm sure you're gonna be out in the world in a way that you probably aren't usually are you Mm -hmm. you have some speaking engagements coming up or i can Uh, just find that on your website yeah it's all on my website right so awesome
0: yeah, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: thank you. So, Salzberg dot com is the place to find everything that's going on with her. With an E, Salzburg with an E, and you're Sharon Salzberg on all the social media mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Cool. So, I am. if you're digging on Sharon, connect with her there and pick up her book, right? Thank you. Cool. Awesome, Sharon. Thank you. Peace. Plants. Yeah, man. That's what I'm talking about. I love that conversation. She is the best. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Sharon is just, she's a gem. She's a national treasure, a wonderful person. Definitely check out her new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, and check out her other books as well, as well as her podcast. I've got all of that stuff listed and linked in the show notes for you guys. And if you guys aren't checking out the show notes that I put together, Uh, with the help of Jason Camiola, we, we spent a lot of time like compiling all these resources to, uh, help you further connect with each of the guests. So please make a point of going to richroll.com and going to the episode page for today's episode and also the past episodes. I think you guys can really take your education and your infotainment beyond the earbuds with, uh, the resources that we put together on a weekly basis. Uh, all right. A few thoughts on love and Sharon, before I let you guys go today. I mean, look, there's very few people in the world who are going to argue with the fact that uh we need a little bit more love for each other in this crazy planet during these insane times. But let's start with ourselves. It's like what Sharon said in the beginning of the podcast that it's up to us that this capacity for love resides within us, and if you've got nothing going on good inside of yourself then you're not going to be able to extend yourself to others. You're not going to be able to exude that love and compassion or be able to share that love with another. You're not going to be able to be of service to be helpful to your fellow human or your loved one. So like I've said before, if you want to be of service to anybody else, you've got to have your own house in order. And this is not about being perfect. None of us are perfect. Of course, myself included, but the more compassionate that we can become towards ourselves, the more that we can kind of cultivate self-love, then the more compassionate we can be, we can make ourselves available to other people. And that ain't going to make the world worse, people. I can promise you that. Hey, you guys know about our meal planner? Not to shift gears here, but I got to tell you about this. It's the Plant Power Meal Planner. We recently launched it uh, not that long ago, like about a month ago, five weeks ago. And I'm so proud of it. It's really quite the amazing, robust service. Basically, it's an online portal that provides you access to literally thousands of plant-based recipes, including unlimited meal plans, grocery lists, even grocery delivery in certain metropolitan cities. And all of this is incredibly personalized and customized according to your particular goals and needs, your time constraints, the foods you like and don't like, your budget, your allergies, etc. cetera. Uh, feedback on this has been amazing and I'm so proud to be able to offer all of you guys out there, something that is so helpful and also incredibly affordable. All of this is available to you for just a dollar 90 a week. Unbelievable, right? Uh, feedback's been amazing. I love the fact that so many of you are sharing the recipes that you're creating and doing that on Instagram and Facebook, et cetera. So uh, if you're struggling with how to put together a plant-based program on the daily, uh, this might be for you. So go to meals.richroll.com or just click on Meal Planner on my website. You can see it right there up at the top. Plant Power Ireland. It's coming up quick here, you guys. We've got a few spots left. Pick them up while they're hot. July 24 through 31, Vallon. This incredible manor on 90 acres in County Cork. It's going to be extraordinary seven days of transformation with julie and i we're going to cook we're going to eat we're going to run we're going to meditate we're going to do tea ceremony we're going to have super intense workshops on everything from relationships to creativity to nutrition to athletic performance uh, and we're just going to commune we're going to create community around these ideas that are so important to us uh, we've done a couple of these retreats. They've been extraordinary experiences, life-changing experiences for the people that have attended. Uh, and it feels really great to be able to connect with this tribe, this community that's slowly growing. And this is how we change lives. This is how we make an impact on culture. It's one person at a time. And Julie and I just love doing these events. We're looking forward to this. Like I said, there's a few spots left for this trip. So if this sounds like your divine appointment, sounds like something you would be into, go to ourplantpowerworld.com. All the information is there and you can sign up there. Uh, If you guys would like to receive a free weekly email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call 5 or 6. Things that uh, have inspired me or that have informed me or that have made me think or a product that I've used, usually documentaries, newspaper articles, uh, long reads, Uh, I don't know, a whole bunch of cool stuff. Just basically my only rule is, oh, is this cool? Is this something I'd like to share uh, with the podcast community, with the community of people that are following along on this journey that we're on collectively and together? Uh, And I send it out like I said, it's free. There's no, uh, there's no hitch. There's no affiliate links in there. I'm not trying to sell you anything, uh, just good stuff. So you can sign up for that anywhere on my website, any of those places where you, uh, just type in your email address, or you can go to richroll.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, have you guys picked up Julie's new book? This cheese is nuts killing it out there. The reviews are amazing. It's selling like crazy. People are really enjoying it. Uh, So proud of the work that she put into this amazing book. And I really think it holds the power to transform lives. So if you listen to my two-part Ditch Dairy series with Dr. Neil Bernard and also with Julie, uh, I don't know if that's not going to convince you as to why you need to get off dairy, uh, then I don't know what to tell you. But Julie's book is The Path Forward. It shows you in very simple terms how to create these unbelievably delicious plant-based cheeses so you don't have to uh, let go of that creamy deliciousness that you're used to. Uh, so check that out. Um, what else can I tell you? Uh, if you'd like to support this show and my work, there's a couple simple, easy, free ways to do that. Won't take up any of your time. Share it with your friends and on social media. Post your favorite episode. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're going to do one thing, click click subscribe. That's the most important thing. As a matter of fact, grab your friend's phone, open the podcast app and subscribe them. I'm not past that kind of stuff, you guys. Uh, Also, I've got a Patreon set up for those of you who want to support my work uh, financially and much love to everybody who has done that. Like I said, uh, was it last episode or a couple episodes ago? I am taking a hard look at Patreon and trying to figure out um, what I can offer to those of you who are patronizing me in that manner with uh, additional content uh, that's sort of behind the velvet rope beyond the podcast. Maybe it's doing a periodic uh, ask me anything episode that only Patreon subscribers are have access to or something like that. I'm thinking about it. I'm definitely going to figure this out soon. I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, that's it, you guys. Have a great couple days. I'll be back with you soon. I want to thank everybody who put on today's podcast, Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production, help with the show notes and the WordPress page, Sean Patterson for help on graphics, not just help. He created all the graphics. Thank you, Sean. And theme music as always by Analemma. But most of all, I want to thank Sharon Salzberg, beautiful soul, fantastic conversation. Hope you guys got a lot out of that and are left with much to think about when it comes to love and meditation and how we navigate our lives on planet earth. Love wide, love deep. See you guys soon. Peace. Plants.